The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we're back to another edition of West of the Rockies. Um, Frank, thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but man, we got a really interesting show lined up for everyone tonight. Uh, Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm really looking forward to this, especially... Um, you know, on the build-up to this big UFO consciousness expo going on called Contact in the Desert. It's always a fun time at Contact in the Desert. We've been going for the last few years, and we're excited that this year is going to be at a whole new venue. Yeah. Definitely something that we urge everyone to check out. If you will be in the, uh, I guess I'll say the Southern California area, right? It's in the, it's in the high desert. If you're anywhere in the vicinity, definitely grab your tickets. Go to contactinthedesert.com. Get your tickets, and uh, Billy Carson, who's our guest tonight, will be there uh, mm -hmm. speaking, as well as a plethora of other great speakers. Without further ado, however, I want to give Genevieve a chance to introduce tonight's guest. All right, well, um, as you heard, we're going to be interviewing Billy Carson tonight. He's the founder of ForbiddenKnowledge.com. That's spelled with a four at the beginning, the numeral. And um, he's a researcher, author, blogger, TV host amongst countless other titles. And as mentioned, he will be attending Contact in the Desert this year, um, the conference that will be occurring in June, I believe. And he'll be there as a speaker, which we're very much looking forward to. Carson is an expert host on the new streaming series by Gaia named Deep Space, which explores the secret space program and the types of technologies being used, along with their potential origins. He's also an expert host on Gaia's original series, Ancient Civilizations, a show which aims to decipher the riddles of humanity's origins. And, you know, they try to piece together basically our forgotten history found in monuments and texts across the world. Carson has combined forces with the top anomaly researchers in the world to form the United Family of Anomaly Hunters. That's U-F-A-H. The group claims to have pioneers two new fields of science. Now, that's really interesting. They um, have labeled them as archaeoastronomy and astroanthropology. And he's a firm believer that these will be college courses in the not-so-distant future. Billy Carson is also the CEO of First Class Space Agency based in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. The space agency is involved in research and development of alternative propulsion systems and zero-point energy devices. Now, this is really interesting high-tech stuff, but anyone that's been following this will know that research has been going on for a long time. He's also the founder of Pantheon Elite Records, um, a label which features five conscious music artists, including himself, and he's a contributor to um, Thrive Global and is a registered international journalist. So, wow, I mean, that was the um, compacted bio that I could manage to muster up. And with that, um, I, you know, I'm honored to welcome Benny Carson onto the show. Mr. Carson, can you hear us okay? 
Yes, I can. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the great introduction again. Um, no, thank you for being here. And um, I'd love to know, honestly, how you first got into all of this. I mean, this is... This is some deep, this is some deep research. So how was your spark ignited? My spark was actually ignited uh, back in 1977. I'm aging myself a little bit. Uh, so, <laughs> But um, I was uh, living in Miami, Florida. We had just moved down from New York City down to Miami. What a culture shock that was. And we moved directly into this place called Opalaka. And we lived inside this area in Opalaka called the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, so they called it the Bermuda Triangle because it had a steel rail around it to keep the crime in. And uh, it, was, it was something else. We'd have to sleep on the floor at night to, to prevent getting hit from stray bullets and so forth. But uh, I would go out in my backyard and uh, we lived close to the Opalaka Airport, the same airport that was used in the Bad Boys movie with uh, Martin Lawrence and, uh, and Will Smith. And I would watch the airplanes go over in my backyard just out of boredom. I would watch them go over and just count the t- amount of time it would take for them to go across the horizon. And one day I was out there looking up and this gigantic orb came across my backyard and it cleared the horizon within seconds, which is impossible for an airplane to do. Even I knew that as a kid. And I just couldn't figure out what in the world I just saw. Then it came back, it hovered ab- above me about maybe 200 meters and then it took off out you know, the way that it came in. And that literally just like sparked me. I went to the library the next day at Rainbow Park Elementary, which was only seven houses away from my, my, my house. And uh, I went straight to the library and I took down all the Encyclopedia Britannicas. We didn't have Google back then. <laughs> so all the encyclopedias, and I started going through every single one dealing with aerospace and military technology. And that's literally when I started my research, literally. You know, in the 70s, I think is when uh, there was a, a big influx in uh, UFO sightings. Prior to this, did you have any interest in any of this stuff? I had no interest prior to that in UFOs. I do remember standing in my living room one day uh, and telling my mom that I just feel like I don't belong here, like I'm, maybe I'm not from here. And she kind of looked at me kind of strange, and then she started telling me about the Nazca lines. And I really didn't fully understand. She was telling me that um, there was a, an ancient airport and runway strips that were in this place called Nazca. And this is, you know, this is a long time ago. And I was like, wow. And I didn't really fully completely grasp it until much later when I started doing a lot more research on my own. Uh, speaking of your research, one of the things that I've, I've been fascinated with for, for many, many years is the possibility that there is a secret space program in play. As you can imagine, there are countless books on this and, and there's countless opinions. I want to know, in your opinion, how far back does the secret space program go? Some people say it started with NASA or Kennedy or even as far as back as World War II and the Nazis and some of the experiments that they were carrying yeah. out. According to your research, what can you tell me about that? Well, according to my research, it seems as if this, um, this program, this project, secret space program, originated most likely with the Nazis. Uh, and we're talking about going all the way back to the 1930s, 1932, 33, 34, 35. And uh, Hitler had a fascination with trying to obtain a lot of these ancient texts and a lot of the ancient records, uh, not only from Sumeria, from all over the planet. And he literally sent out his people all over the planet looking and scouring the world for information about ancient Vimanas, which are flying machines, ancient Sanskrit texts that talked about Anunnaki and other beings from other, other uh, planets. He was even looking for the inner earth people. 
where I think he probably found some pre-Adamite type of people down in Antarctica where he set up a base and somehow um, was able to obtain some type of information or technology because they started developing the, the Hanabu craft all the way back in the 1930s. This is long before the Roswell crash. They actually had a test flight of one, which I have a very rare footage of. It's only about 15 or 20 seconds of a test flight of a Hanabu in 1935. Uh, this is a, a combination anti-gravity, combination thruster type of a disc-shaped vehicle. So that's really how far back it kind of goes. Now, what happened was the United States, uh, once we got closer to the wars, obviously, the United States said, you know, we got to get these guys, we got to get these scientists and I really think that part of the whole uh, World War uh, scenario was to actually get these scientists. And it was almost as if, the, if this war, to my, in my opinion, was kind of a negotiated ending to a war. And uh, we literally took several hundred of these uh, uh, scientists and other military officers out of Nazi Germany in Project Paperclip. And that's officially when the United States secret space program started back then. So we're talking about taking a lot of key people, a lot of key scientists, and even military officers and putting them at the head of government projects in NASA, in aerospace, and even in the CIA. So it's almost as if the United States became the Fourth Reich in a way. And from there, we went dark. And when, we, when I say dark, I mean, we went all the way dark. A front program was put up. But there was always a back-end program dealing with anti-gravity and different types of technology that, that these scientists had either acquired, learned, or reverse-engineered. And also a lot of the craft that were being brought down in 1947, it wasn't just one Roswell crash. It was uh, probably almost a dozen total crashes between 47 and 50 um, that they were bringing these craft down on, on purpose. They actually had a, a scalar type of a weapon that they discovered was disrupting the navigational, navigational devices on some of these UFOs, and they were bringing them down. They would bring them down, then they would go out and confiscate the bodies and confiscate the, the, the crashed craft, and then they would take them to wherever they took them to start trying to reverse engineer them. When you mentioned Hitler and the Nazis uh, being almost obsessed with grading these incredible aircraft, uh, you say that they went all over the world and found these ancient uh, writings and, and things of that nature. What does that tell us? How old is this technology? Does it mean that at some point our ancestors way back when possibly saw these craft in action? Yeah, this, this technology is super, super ancient. I mean, you know, just as the Mayans said, we're in the fifth world. We're going into the fifth world now. I think we've had civilizations on this planet, at least four of them that have risen and fallen, whether it was from wars, whether it was from geological disasters. And I think that the Anunnaki beings came here during a time 450,000 years ago when we were in a fallen state again. So we had already risen, in my personal opinion, to a very high level of civilization before the Anunnaki even got here but had fallen again due to most likely some type of a geological disaster. And the best one that I can kind of um, affiliate it with would most likely be a pole shift of the crust of the Earth, which is why Antarctica moved out of a more temperate climate into a frozen climate, and the animals still have uh, undigested foods in their stomach when you, when you take them out of the ice. Uh, so we're talking about super ancient technology, and uh, there's a very amazing quote that's in the Bible that actually says, there's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes. And, uh, and I think that's a real term. I think there really is nothing new. I think everything is just being rediscovered, but there's absolutely nothing new. Everything has already been done. I've been to Egypt in May of 2014, and I really looked at a lot of these hieroglyphs. And in these glyphs, you can see depictions of technology, crafts, devices that look electrical by nature, things that look like tanks, 
planes in the hieroglyphs, not just in one place, but in many different places around Egypt. And so you start to get the idea that these people were a lot more advanced where they inherited something that was here a long time ago, and it had just been kind of uh, passed down. I know you do a lot of research into uh, forbidding knowledge. Why do you think, and just to use a term here, I'll say the powers that be. Why do you think that the powers that be want us to think that there was nothing like this back then, that we're living at the pinnacle of technological advancement and that there is no way that the Egyptians or any of these ancient civilizations had access to this type of technology? The main reason is power. It's not money because money is fake, but power and control. In order to keep the wheels churning, in order to keep the people like you know the sheep going to work, doing their thing, generating the revenue, generating, running the country, making things function so that they can focus on their main goals, which are to get back into space. These are the bloodline of the progenitors that are looking to get back, which is the whole secret of the 33rd degree mason. It really has nothing to do with all these types of crazy things people talk about. The ultimate goal for 33rd degree mason is escaping into space because you have to travel 33 times the speed of sound to leave the Earth's gravity. And it's about getting back into space. And they've encoded this into all the structures and buildings and everything else. It's all about passing down ancient history. And the means that are in is to get back into space by using us as cattle. And you have to have control over the masses. And once the masses have enough knowledge, wisdom, and understanding as to what really happened in the ancient past, well, then they can alter the future. And if they alter the future, that means these elite people, this very small hand uh, full of people are going to lose control over 7.5 billion. And they don't want that to happen. And this goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel incident in the Bible. You can see a better account of it as well in the Sumerian tablets, where Enlil, who's Yahweh in the Bible, and then in Sumerian tablets, he's Enlil. He comes back after, I guess, he'd been away. Maybe he traveled to around the, the other side of the globe or he, wherever he came from. He came back and noticed that the humans were building a tower to space. Uh, and at that moment, he realized these people are smarter than we, we gave credit for. We got to destroy this tower. And then not only we're going to destroy the tower, but we're also going to regenetically modify them one more time and, and cap their chromosome number two and, and limit them to 120 years. So in the in the Sumerian version, they're limited to 120 years of living. And also in the biblical version, God or Yahweh says, my seed shall not abide in man for more than 120 years. And then they split them up and spread all the, you know, change all the languages around and got them to fight each other instead, so they can focus on each other instead of focusing on the real enemy. So this goes back even into ancient times, the divide and conquer technique, which is what we see in play right now on this planet. And they keep you sick with GMOs. They keep you sick with different types of things that cause cancer all the time because they don't want us to live our full 120 to 200 years that we should be living. They want us to die early. They want us to have bad memories, be sick, be weak, so that they can continue to progress along the path that they're looking for. I actually want to take it a step back, even possibly before ancient technologically advanced civilizations. And I believe you were um, talking about this online at some point. The Neanderthals and previous humans, um, such as those, may have possibly been more intelligent than us, un- yes. <laughs> unlike, you know, modern man would like to think. And, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it could make a lot of sense. And the way you described it is, um, I believe, you know, they may have been more in tune with nature and essentially... Yeah, we definitely were. We were more connected spiritually and uh, through our pineal gland and through our extrasensory perception and more directly connected to the planet. Uh, If you remember the uh, tsunami that hit the, uh, I think it was the Philippines a few years back and it wiped out several hundred people or several thousand people, I think actually were on the the coastline. 
they didn't find any wild animals uh, in their wash. And the reason why is because the wild animals had already left days before the tsunami came in, before the earthquake even happened. The wild animals, they were gone. Why were they gone? They were gone because they're tapped and tuned in to the Schumann resonance and the frequency of the earth and able to communicate. It's a, it's a data transfer. Now, our DNA as human beings, we have uh, DNA has been discovered to be Wi-Fi ready. We literally can send and receive information directly through the DNA, store memories through the DNA, and the DNA is a digital medium storage source. So you can actually take, they took out one gram of DNA and they actually stored the entire library of Congress on it from a computer and then uploaded it back into the database again. So it stores zeros and ones, databytes. So when they say we have junk DNA and all, you know, most of our DNA is just disconnected. What they've done is they've gone in and genetically modified, disconnected us from our higher self, our higher consciousness. They didn't, didn't disconnect enough of it because we still have a route back because of the body, the human avatar is an amazing robotic, you know, specimen. But they disconnected a lot of that access that we used to have and in more ways than one, the ancient man was far smart, smarter and more wise than the current modern homo sapien. Yeah, and... I believe there is a certain um, modern man arrogance, um, thinking mm -hmm. that intelligence equates to technology, but we forget about other types of intelligence, which exactly. you know, are far more metaphysical than just this realm, <laughs> I guess. Mm -hmm. Very true. Mr. Carson, if I may backtrack a little bit to the secret space program, because I do want to get into this uh, this aspect of our of the conversation we were just having. But really quick, uh, I wanted to ask you: a lot of people believe that the Roswell crash was the catalyst for our uh, technological advancement. However, in recent years, a lot more people have come out to say that the Roswell craft wasn't an alien craft; could have been just a secret project, whether it was Russian or German. From what you've researched, what can you tell me about the Roswell crash and how much did that influence the U.S. and what would later become the secret space program for that matter? It seems like the Roswell crash really was a craft that we didn't control and that nobody else on this planet uh, created, at least on the exterior of the planet. We don't know if this is a UFO from outer space or we don't know if it's a UFO from inner space. You know, um, now. I'm one of the ones that tend to believe that Earth has got these huge caverns, these honeycomb-type caverns. Not that it's completely hollow, but with a cavern system, which some have been already been discovered, and I've been in a couple of them. In Wapampilpa, Mexico, I've went to one, two kilometers down. See, these places are massive. They have their own everything down there. So we don't know if it came from below or above, but... The fact is, um, I don't believe that I did, the cover-up's been too strong over many, many years, and the stories have changed and changed and changed. I believe that the original stories are of the people who came forward are true, and that this craft was taken uh, and reverse-engineered. Michael Schratt, who's an aerospace historian, uh, also the, uh, I think he's the founder of Open Minds magazine, uh, was actually at a government-sponsored private uh, aerospace show where they were showcasing some of the most latest technology. This is, I think it was 2012 he was there. Uh, I think I have the clip on one of my blogs. But he was at a meeting where they actually had something called an ARV, which they called an Alien Reproduction Vehicle. This is a private aerospace meeting, and he's there. Uh, and they had one vehicle there that he claims that the speaker told uh, the, the crowd there, I guess the bidders or the buyers or the investors, whoever they were, that it can leave Earth in the morning go to Mars and be back by dinner. So uh, it's running on something with uh, having to deal with an EM drive, 
which now all of a sudden has just hit the top of the news, top of the charts. It's everywhere. They're talking about mm-hmm. EM drive. China has an EM drive on a satellite. We've got an EM drive that's tested positively in the lab, but China got theirs up first. And with this EM drive, they're saying you can be to Mars in less than a week. So all of a sudden, what this guy said so many years ago, and people laughed at me and told me I was crazy for even putting this up, now all of a sudden it's come to reality. It seems in the last few months, a lot of the the things that people maybe laughed under their breath a little bit have been forced to reconsider the very real possibilities that there is more out there that we are, are just not privy to. Going back to Project Paperclip, we know that the U.S. acquired, I think, most of the Nazi scientists that were working on a a space program in Germany. Once they came to the U.S. and NASA ramped up, is that the beginning of the secret space program here in the U.S.? Is there something else going on underneath the surface that we don't know about? That's pretty much the beginning. I mean, people don't realize how many people they took out of uh, Germany. It took about 1,600 of them. It wasn't just a couple, which a lot of people don't realize how many Germans were brought here. I mean, you talk about, you know, almost 2,000 people. That's a lot of people. And before that happened, everything was just research. We were just research and development, spying on other countries, trying to figure out what the Germans were doing, trying to figure out how this stuff worked. We had no clue how this stuff worked until we got our hands on the German scientists and researchers and brought them over here. And then that's when officially the secret space program started for America. And everything went dark. And NASA First, it was NACA, but then changed over to NASA. That became the front uh, public company. Okay, we're going to put this out to the general public. We're going to tell them that some of their taxes are helping pay for this. We're going to make them feel like they're involved in it, like they have some kind of say-so. We're going to share information and data with them. But behind the scenes, we're going to progress as far as we can go with with the highest level of technology that we can go with these scientists and take ourselves to the highest realms. And that's exactly what they've done. They've literally gone behind the scenes and and they're at the point now where they're so bold, they launched uh, private military or or top secret military launches right into daylight and bring them back during the daylight and then tell you, yeah, this was a top secret mission. Um, One of the more recent ones that just came back was the X-37B, which left, I think it was in October of 2014 and stayed in space for two years. Right. Cargo ship. And it came back, you know, 674 day trip. It went on a mission into space and nobody knows where it went, what it did. It's got the most technologically advanced navigation system out of any craft that we've ever launched, supposedly. I think there's some more high tech than this, but this even to me looks like a cargo ship that's taking cargo somewhere. Where is it taking the cargo? We don't know. But uh, again, this private space program or the secret space program is very real. There's even a website for it that the Navy has, you know, so it's, it's, it's out front. But what's going on behind the scenes is untouchable. And when I went to the um, space symposium last year in Colorado, they had two sections for top secret. One section for top secret was for top secret private, which is where I went. And then they had another section for top secret uh, military. And in there, all the big wig military industrial complex guys were in there doing their thing. And, you know, they're talking about uh, projects in there that we can't even get access to. So the last I heard with just within my meeting, which I can say is that they're about 300 years ahead of the general population right now. Not 50, not 60, not 70, 300 years ahead of whatever we can conceive has almost already been done. What is the purpose of the secret space program? Is it just to colonize other planets? I've heard things that the elites may want to evacuate the earth at some point. Why have a secret space program? First and foremost is securing the planet. Okay, so basically, we're just finding out 
you know, obviously that or maybe we've known for a while ourselves, but the majority of the population is just finding out that there's potentially life out there in, in abundance and we're being visited. So there's no way to know who's hostile and who's not because good and bad permeate the entire universe. And they know this and they've known this for a very long time. So the first part of it is to secure the planet uh, against invaders and intruders. Okay, and I can understand that. Okay. But the second part of it, it has to do with... Uh, basically the survival of mankind and picking the genetic pool of people who have an opportunity to go to these breakaway civilizations. And I really truly feel that there's several breakaway civilizations right here in our own solar system. And most likely Mars was one of the very first ones. And I think that we were already on Mars when Kennedy was making his speech about going to the moon. Wow. Okay. I want to, I want to get back to that in just a minute, but let me, mm -hmm. let me uh, explore the secret space program a little bit further because <laughs> one of the things that I remember without going too much into whether the, the moon landing was faked or not, I remember reading stories that Buzz Aldrin and the other astronauts saw alien mm -hmm. spacecraft, if I may use the term, when they arrived on the moon and that it was on a subsequent lunar uh, mission that they were told never to go back. And recently in the news, there has been a, a bit of a controversial story going around whether Buzz Aldrin did indeed see a UFO on his way to the moon or not. He has denied it time and time again, but for some reason, this story will not go away. In your opinion, what was the purpose of the moon mission? And well, while we're at it, do you believe that we actually landed on the moon? Yes, yeah, so, well, there's two parts to that. We went to the moon, but we also lied about it. So this is the part where people tend to really go one side or the other without really figuring out that there's actually an in-between. Uh, we sent the Clementine mission up there to orbit the moon, low Earth, low lunar orbit, before we actually sent people there. And the Clementine mission sent back some unbelievable, and that was a secret space uh, mission, which eventually got declassified. Mm -hmm. But it sent back some unbelievable images from the moon. And what that did was it told them, okay, well, there's structures, there's things up there. There's a, there's a place we'd like to land and maybe see if we can put some of this stuff back on the uh, module and bring it back to the Earth. So what they did was they literally did plan a real moon mission, but they also planned a fake Hollywood version of the moon mission to mix and combine with the, uh, the realistic stuff with the fake stuff. The reason why is because you can't show people on Earth and the citizens of the world that there's an ancient structure right there on the moon and there's pieces of broken technology and titanium all over the floor and so mm -hmm. forth and so on. So uh, they kind of combined it into a um, part real, part fake. So we did, yes, we went to the moon, but yes, we also lied about it. And a couple of uh, things that people are saying, well, you can't get through the Van Allen radiation belt. It's impossible to do that, so forth and so on. That's another big lie. Van Allen did discover that there was a radiation belt during the Mercury test missions and everything else. He brought it to NASA's attention. NASA analyzed it, sent the probe up there. They said, yeah, there is a radiation belt. They said, well, let's try to do this. Let's try to blow it up and see if we can make it evacuate. They actually sent the nuke up there, blew it up, and just added more radiation, didn't do anything. But through more study and research, they discovered that there are these magnetic lines of the Earth whipped through the radiation belt and create these highways, that, so to speak, that go through it. They also discovered that a person would need to be in an unprotected craft for at least four months before they got a, a lethal dose, and you're going to pass right through the radiation belt within a matter of less than a day. So they plotted a course through one of the magnetic loops. They, they got through the radiation belt very easily, very safely. There's no, it's not a barrier on Earth that's locking us in. Uh, and then the other one is the fact that they're trying to say that uh, boots never touch the ground because the boots that you see on the Internet 
They look smooth on the bottom. Where's the footprint coming from? Well, there's a two-part boot. You have a one-piece suit that you wear as, a, as, a, as an astronaut. The second part is a slip-on Velcro type of a boot when you're actually going to get those big 10-pound boots out and go walking on the surface, lunar surface. And those are at the actual spaceport, which I've seen in myself, and they're real, and they've been used uh, but uh, some of the hoaxers like to leave those out of the pictures to get people, you know, going crazy with conspiracies again. But yes, we, we really did get out and go and walk on the moon and everything else. Uh, so it, it did happen. As far as uh, the possibility of encountering other life, whether it was on the way there or once they landed there, have you found anything uh, in your research that would support that such an event took place? Absolutely. First one is I was in a documentary called Docuphobia, which was uh, produced by Thomas Mickey Schroeder Jensen out of Denmark. And in this uh, documentary, uh, we have a clip of Buzz Aldrin talking on camera, uh, talking about the UFO that tracked them to the moon. Uh, and they were talking about how they were uh, hesitant to call back to NASA to tell them that they had a UFO following them because they knew they would get the whole mission canceled. So what they did was they decided to ask NASA if they knew where one of the um, uh, ejected uh, booster rockets were. And NASA was like, well, that thing's been long gone a long time ago. I mean, they were just trying to guess and see maybe that thing was tumbling with them or whatever. They didn't know what to say, but or maybe they were trying to throw a hint to NASA, but NASA didn't have the slightest clue as to that this thing was following them to the moon. Uh, so that's Buzz Aldrin's exact words, and we have the well, the clip of him saying that in the actual documentary. So he did say it. And then uh, when they got to the moon, there's another voice file that we have of him saying they landed across the um, uh, the crater and they're they're watching us. So wow. there were some craft that actually landed, and to back him up, Thomas Bergeron in an interview. I'm sorry, with um, what's the lady's name again? Camelot. Project Camelot, yep. and he told uh, the lady that um, he saw from, from the Earth now at the Mission Control, he saw giant seven to eight foot tall, dark black people getting out of these craft watching us land on the moon. So she goes to him, she goes, black people? He goes, yes, black, really dark, black. And I don't know if that's because their suit was black or if they were black people. They probably most likely had a black suit or all black type of outfit on, whatever it was, they were black and they were giants. Um, and uh, he was adamant about it. Now, this guy, this is the guy for Ames Research and everything else. So this guy, is a, his Wikipedia is off the charts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, he, so he's very credible, a very credible source. Um, but so this is what happened. So they went there. Now, we also have the black box mission tapes from Apollo 11. We have the writing, which some of it was redacted, but some of it wasn't redacted. In one of the pages, they go, one of the astronauts goes, uh, boy, there must be nothing more desolate than to be inside of some of these craters these conical ones. Now, I don't know about you, but a conical crater is definitely talking about a dome structure. And then the astronaut says, the people that live in there probably never get out. This is official NASA declassified documents. This is the black box, and we have the black box audio as well as the black box redacted document. So that's August 1969, we got the recorder on command module, onboard recorder, data storage equipment, DSC. So we have all this information, all this data. And it's, um, it's all publicly available, but the public just doesn't know where to source it all out. We've done all the hard work. That is incredible. <laughs> um, so could you tell us a, a little bit about the different um, views or, I guess, um, goals and agendas between JFK's idea of space exploration mm -hmm. and 
other people's idea of space exploration, such as um, those people that didn't quite agree with him, such as von Braun yeah. and Johnson. Well, the, the agenda for JFK was he really did believe in uh, going into space and he really wanted to uh, make us a spacefaring nation and he really was interested in aliens as well. He actually tried to get the information on the aliens and that's partly why he was killed. Some of the FBI uh, declassified documents that come out, it talks about him kind of knowing a little bit too much about the alien interaction or the alien or, or, or Americans engaging or the military engaging with aliens and uh, working out some type of a deal, potentially maybe even back as far as um, Eisenhower. So that is kind of um, where, where he got himself into a little bit of trouble. And I think that's part of the, between that and trying to get a, do away with the, uh, the uh, fiat money. I think that got him killed. Um, mm -hmm. But the other agendas of some of the other people were on the dark side. They were really looking to create or continue to run or manage this dark program that would have people being taken off the planet Earth and taken to these breakaway civilizations, or these outposts, and setting these up, I believe, in our, inside of our own solar system in places where they told you nothing can ever live, like Mercury, Venus, and Mars. Um, and I found evidence that Basically, a human being can live on all three of those planets, and I've posted and talked about it a lot long before the Mercury Messenger uh, data came back, showing that there's actually uh, more higher rich oxygen-rich content on Mercury with billions of tons of liquid water, which just came back a couple of years ago from the Mercury Messenger. So we've been ahead of the game the whole time, but the covert mission is, is to get people off planet. When I was talking to Laura Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower's great-granddaughter, I spoke with her at a couple of conferences, and she opened up and she talked about them trying to recruit her to go to Mars. And they actually put a handler on her. She didn't think it was a handler at first. It was set up as a romance, but it was actually a handler. And the handler was trying to coerce her to go uh, and take off to go to Mars by 2006. She actually, obviously, she never went. Uh, but um, this was a real project, and it was handpicked people in certain lineages, certain bloodlines, and certain genetic pools. And I believe that a lot of the people that are missing off of Earth on an annual basis not all of them, but a lot of them are being taken away into these um, slave camps where they may be either injected with some type of a mind control or whatever to get them to work, to do the infrastructure. But I think a lot of these places need infrastructure, and I don't think that billionaires are going to go up there and get out a shovel. I think the infrastructure has got to be built before they get there so that when they arrive, everything's pretty much done. 3D printed houses, piping, plumbing, electric, all of this stuff is being set up as we speak. That just blows my mind to know that this could very well be happening right under our noses. One of the things that um, I uh, wanted to ask you about was a while back we had the pleasure of interviewing um, astronaut Story Musgrave, and he's tied for the record for most uh, spacewalks. And I asked, why didn't we go back to the moon? Mm -hmm. If we did it on more than one occasion early on, why haven't we gone back? And he said, um, got a lot of comments because of his answers saying that he was yeah. being evasive. And he said, you yeah. know, uh, NASA has just lost its purpose, its mission. You know, the people who are there now have, they don't have the goal set like the generations before, if you will. Mm -hmm. Is that what you think it's happening? Do you think that's the reason why we haven't gone back to the moon? No, I think that we were literally told to stay off the moon for a while. And the reason why I think that is because one of the missions to the moon, we put a, a communications device there, a satellite communication device that actually operates off of a laser. And what we do is we piggyback data transmission on this laser to send data back and forth to the moon. And we still do that 
literally on a weekly basis in some cases. So what information are we sending up and receiving back? Why are we doing this this long? In my personal opinion, we were told by the people that live there, don't come back, or maybe we need to negotiate some type of a truce or treaty or who knows, for whatever reason it was. But the fact that we didn't go back and they have this communication device makes me want to think that we're in communication with somebody up there. Now, what took me to another level with this is when one of the researchers in my group, Chris Maroney of Mars Anomalies, downloaded the radar scan of the moon, a very new recent one. And when he downloaded this radar scan, he discovered that it penetrated the moon's surface by about 30 meters. So we took this down and analyzed it, and he did a really good job making a video about it showing structures underneath the moon's surface, because, you know, it's ground-penetrating radar. You can see geometric structures under the moon's surface with these domes that have these facades over them to make them look like there's, you know, it's a surface. Uh, so this was absolutely amazing to me. So that tells me that there's potentially people living up there, or maybe there's an outpost up there of some sort, and whoever's in control of that told us, in my opinion, until we negotiate something or until we give you something, you guys don't come back. Because the reason why we haven't gone back doesn't make any sense. They keep saying this or that. We ran out of money. We ran. But we sent. We spent trillions of dollars on Mars to tell everybody that there's a cold rock, but we can't get back to the moon, which is right above our heads. So it just doesn't add up. And as you know, there's a lot of resources on the moon, and now they discovered that there's the moon is mostly made of titanium which to me is the underlying structure of the actual artificial moon. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that it's mostly artificial uh, and that the reason why those craters up there aren't deep craters, all those craters are very shallow. I mean, there's no ejecta at the rim's edge of most of these craters. Why would all the asteroids and, and meteorites hit it directly straight on? We're not, there's, no, there's no angles. Everything is straight on top with very shallow craters, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. And when you pull down some of these craters and look inside the walls of these craters, you see windows and doors. Why would there be windows and doors and craters on the moon? It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more going on up there than, than we're being told. And I think a lot of the parts of the moon are most likely uh, uh, holographic projections, making it look like there's a surface in certain areas when there's actually most likely a dome structure. And one of the ones that I discovered was in the LM, the lunar module, returning back to the command module. Uh, in 1969, it was a video, original video that I got from the NASA.gov, unedited, and I actually just opened it, I took a screenshot, opened it up in Photoshop, and turned the contrast down, and a magnificent dome popped up with building structures inside of it that were over a mile tall. So, and I've, I've published that as well, it, it made the news. So, it's, a, it's an amazing thing what's going on up there. I really do believe that there's people up there, and they've told us either not to come back, or come back when we tell you that we're ready for you to come back. Yeah, and I agree with you on the idea that the moon could be an artificial structure, or many people I refer to it as an artificial satellite. And one of the things that I've always uh, told people that, that it's interesting, it's the moon is strange in the sense that it never rotates, and we just have the same face of the moon every night. And as you mentioned, a lot of the studies that people have done seem to point at the possibility that this is not just a natural occurring uh, celestial body. And even when I read some of the scientific explanations as to how we got the moon, they almost sound even more outrageous than the <laughs> quote-unquote conspiracy <laughs> theories yeah, as I know. to how we got the I moon. I know, they're outrageous. The moon literally is uh, much older, scientifically proven now, much older than the Earth. So the whole thing that they try to teach us in school where something crashed into the Earth and created the moon, That's all a farce. The moon is mostly helium-3 and titanium. 
more helium-3 than anything else. So, again, biologically, it doesn't match with any of the Earth's contents. And uh, when you go into the ancient tablets, you discover that there was a planet, which is now an asteroid belt, our asteroid belt, the inner asteroid belt, right outside of the orbit of Mars. That planet was called Tiamat in ancient times, according to the Atra Esis epic and the Enuma Elish, the seven tablets of creation. Well, this planet was about four to six times the size of Earth, and it had several satellites orbiting it. One of them was the moon that we have now, and Earth didn't even exist at this point in time. When it had a collision with this other planet named Marduk, which is also known as Nibiru in the Enuma Elish, it broke apart and a huge chunk of it swung away and became the Earth. Gravitationally, according to these tablets, the Lamu, which is the moon, came along with it and orbited uh, as the Earth recoalesced. Uh, and a lot of the biological material from this water and solid Earth planet that exploded now was now becoming the Earth and the rest of it broke into pieces and chunks and became the asteroid belt, except for one big piece, which is the planet Ceres, which orbits right outside of Mars, which a lot of people don't even know exists. That planet has water, clouds, weather, everything else on it as well. And Mars was most likely a moon of this Tiamat. It would explain its very strange elliptical orbit that it has around the sun. It was released from its orbit around this Tiamat planet when it blew up. Now, the other thing about the moon around the orbiting the Earth is that it has the most circular orbit than any other moon that we've ever witnessed ever throughout the entire galaxy with Hubble and everything else. Wow. It's got the most circular orbit. They put seismometers on it when they went up there on one of the lunar trips. And when they crashed one of the lunar modules into the surface of the moon, it literally set up the seismometers for hours. So they're saying that it rang like a bell, literally, because uh, there's it's, it's, a, it's a structure with hollow insides. And I think those kind of things that we did up there is probably why they said, look, you guys can't come back up or you're destroying our, our base or outpost or whatever this is. You guys are playing games and we're not, we're not going to have it. Uh, so that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, we're, we're not, we weren't allowed back. But the, the moon itself did come from another uh, orbit around another planet. And it most likely was even artificial at that time and then was moved into orbit over here or either shifted into orbit over here and put into a gravitationally locked orbit where it's actually uh, not a tidal lock so we only see one side all the time and the back side which is the dark side which is not really always dark uh actually has a lot of structures on it and it would be a great place to set up post and watch and monitor everything without human beings ever knowing what was going on you know so it's an amazing thing before we take our top of the hour break i got one last question a few years ago there was a hacker from the uk uh mckinnon jerry mckinnon yeah mm -hmm. correct for the folks that may not be familiar with the story, he successfully hacked some military computers here in the U.S. and found what would appear to be evidence of some type of space program. Did you find that that evidence supports this theory that there is something more going on? Or do you think that what he saw was not really you know, related to what we're discussing here tonight about a secret space program? Yeah, Gary McKinnon was the real deal, in my opinion. He really found some real information. He had friended me for a short amount of time on Facebook and actually joined one of my groups in the United Family of Anomaly Hunters for a while and was actually presenting anomalies into the group for Mars and other planets in our solar system. I think he's a real deal, a very authentic guy. Uh, I think that um, the information that he acquired with regards to non-human officers and all the information he acquired over a two-year period of time was real. And the Solar Warden project was definitely real, and that's verified by going to the Ronald Reagan archives online, where Ronald Reagan's quote is there stating that they had authorized uh, 
uh, the space program to build these shuttles, and there's ships that now can take people up of 250 into space. If he makes that exact quote as a statement, which he did, which is saved in his archives, how can we have not seen? I have never seen a ship. Have you seen a shuttle that take 250 people up into space? Never. <laughs> no, no, absolutely I think not. Challenger took the most I've ever seen. I've never seen 250 people get on any ship anywhere. So whatever ship he's talking about, most likely is part of that Solar Warden fleet that he authorized back then, which is part of the protection. You have the Solar Warden fleet, which is part of the secret program. You have the CC, the ICC, I'm sorry, Interplanetary Corporate Conglomerate. You have the Dark Fleet, which is a very secretive fleet that uh, operates just outside the solar system, believe it or not. And you have various black ops and private corps. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the, in the secret space program. Sounds like it. I mean, and, and one would imagine that to be the case because uh, the more time passes, I believe, they have been dropping little hints and nuggets along the way, I think, to prepare us for the, the big news one day. And it seems like that day is coming uh, quicker and quicker. Mr. Carson, would you be so kind just to stay on the line just for a few minutes while we uh, play some songs and run some station IDs, and then we'll get back into this conversation? Fantastic. Awesome. Our guest tonight is Mr. Billy Carson, and we're talking about the secret space program this whole first hour. This is some fascinating stuff, and really the possibilities and the ramifications are really extraordinary. And we're going to go to break with, as I said at the beginning of the show, I'm, I'm kind of I've been listening to a lot of mid-90s music this week. I know you have. I've almost <laughs> so, told you to just stop it. Like, I know, come on. <laughs> I know, but I'm going to keep that theme going here tonight. We're going to, since we're talking about space, here's another band from the mid-90s. Actually, this one's from your neck of the woods, the UK. This band's called Space Hog, and this song is called In the Meantime. Don't go away. West of the Rockies is coming right up in just a few with our guest, Billy Carson. West of the Rockies. Open, open your, your, your mind, mind. And we're back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late for uh, some of the folks out there, but man, we're having an amazing conversation here tonight with our guest, Billy Carson. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WOTRradio.com. Uh, that's also the website, WTR Radio. Sorry, I always do that. I always say the Twitter, WTRradio.com. But then the website, I one day I'm gonna get the other this. Way. Yeah. Every basically whatever you do, W to your radio. Just, that that's it. Yeah. That, that that'll get you. Add the ads wherever you are. Yeah, that'll get you where you need to go. Uh, so always I'm joined with Jen. Uh, wow. Tonight's not my night. <laughs> so always I'm joined by Genevieve. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Genevieve U Way. And uh, you can catch her hosting her very own show, music, fun facts, jokes, and a whole lot more. No added flavors right here on the independent.fm. I think I got that one right this time. Uh, <laughs> a little back announcing, you just heard Jamiroquai. That was virtual insanity. Uh, Genevieve cautioned me not to play that song, but I just couldn't help myself. Oh, well, I didn't caution you not to play that song. I just remember when it was very overplayed back it in was. the UK. And I'm sure Jamiroquai <laughs> was kind of more overplayed in the UK than it was Just here. A little bit. So for us, it was kind of like the, oh, okay, I've had enough of that. Right. Over here, it's probably still kind of like catchy and cool. 
Yeah, I haven't heard that song in like 20 years, so it's fine, right? <laughs> I think it sounded fresh for a lot of people. I know it did for me. And then we, before that, we had Space Hog with, in the meantime, I, interestingly enough, both bands from the UK. Uh, goes to show the UK still cranks out some uh, excellent musicians, if I may say so. You make it sound like they don't. No, I'm saying because yeah. they always have, I think, <laughs> right? Like all the great rock bands are from I England. Mean, of, of Led course, Zeppelin, gonna, Pink Floyd, I'm, I'm going to have a bias. So well, yeah, I think you would. Um, our guest tonight is Mr. Billy Carson, and I'm going to bring him back on the line so he can tell us a little bit about where can people find him on social media, his website, Twitter handles, and all that good stuff. Yes, uh, my website is ForbiddenKnowledge.com with the number four. So it's the number four, B-I-D-D-E-N-K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G-E, ForbiddenKnowledge.com. You can also find links to my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's all at Forbidden Knowledge. Uh, I'm also um, on um, on Stellar. So OnStellar.com, O-N-S-T-E-L-L-A-R. It's a new private social media network that we've uh, kind of started. And it's exploding already. It's doing phenomenal. Just trying to get away from a lot of the data sales and everything else mm -hmm. and create our own network. So it's really doing very well. Uh, Jimmy Church and David Wilcock and everybody's involved and they're all on there as well as myself. So we just launched that. And that's again at Forbidden Knowledge or just look for Billy Carson. And also, if you'd like, if you go on iTunes or Spotify or any of your music devices, literally almost any virtual app you have that has to do with music, just type in Forbidden Knowledge with the number four. Uh, and some of my music will actually pop up as well. Very cool. Uh, a man of many talents. That's always that's always <laughs> great. One of the things you mentioned in the first hour that I want to bring up really quick because it's it's something that we discuss on this show quite a bit is the uh, this issue of uh, secret societies. And I have a lot of friends who are Freemasons currently, and uh, you know they like to poke fun at me a little bit because uh, mm -hmm. in their eyes the Brotherhood is not. What it used to be, according to them, it's become a bit more lax. It's, it's not as nefarious. Mm -hmm. However, it's a rumor, a theory, if you will, that it just won't go away. It seems like secret societies, the government, and some of the stuff that's going on in the world will always be intertwined. In your opinion, is there or are there secret societies at play influencing the world still? Or is it, as a lot of uh, modern masons say, it's become more of a lighthearted social club, if you will? Oh no, no. I mean, the now the, the masons that you have that go to these events once or twice a month um, in their local areas or local cities, those are just social events. That's where people mostly, a lot of older guys, um, you know, go to hang out and, and hang out and meet women and dance and have a good night. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But there's no real serious secret knowledge being exchanged. Uh, I've spoken to many of these Freemasons uh, and locally. They couldn't answer five of my questions, which I, I, knew, I knew the answer to the question before I asked them, but they didn't know the answers. So they're not really getting any knowledge or gaining any, but there are real secret societies out there at the high elite elite levels. That's where the Rothschild and Rockefeller, that's where you sit down at the table with those guys, and there's only a few of those. There's less than 100 families run 7.5 billion people on this planet, and that's the top echelon of the uh, secret society, are the people that get invited to those meetings and sit at those tables other than that, the Masons themselves, and no disrespect to anybody who's listening that may be a Mason, the true wisdom, knowledge, and information has kind of gotten diluted over time. But the real and true Masons that are in the elite groups know exactly what the 33rd degree Mason is all about. It's all about escaping Earth's gravity and getting back into space. Because like I said, you have to travel 33 times the speed of sound in order to break Earth's gravity. 
And the launch pad in Florida is only one. It's launch pad 33. It's exactly 33 degrees off of the coast. I mean, all these things are not coincidences. This is all about space travel and the sun's volume compared to the, uh, the I think the mass of the Earth can fit into the sun 333,000 times. I mean, this is all, it's all been calculated, mm-hmm. man. This is very specific type of stuff. But there are real secret societies. There is a real Illuminati, so to speak. A lot of the people that people are saying are in, in the Illuminati are not in any kind of Illuminati or any society. People have gone crazy with this thing. The people that are in these secret societies are very elite, elite upper echelon people. And it's not an open group where we can just say, look, we're recruiting you. You guys want to come to our meeting and join up? It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of a quote I heard a, a long time ago that said, those who talk don't know and those that know don't speak. And exactly. uh, it, it definitely seems that that is the case. What is some of the forbidden knowledge that some of these secret societies have passed down that you know of? Some of it is in, in real masonry, where you actually have a lot of the masonry throughout Washington, D.C., uh, of course, uh, in ancient Egypt, it's still there, a lot of these megalithic sites. But So going back from ancient times until now, as you look into even a lot of the places that like in, in Europe, uh, the monarchy, a lot of the structures and the castles and everything else, they all have encoded in them the secret numbers into the construction. And these secret numbers are supposed to resonate and generate a frequency, number one. And the second thing it's supposed to do is actually pass down knowledge and information to the person that can decipher and decode it. It's like a stone history book as well as a magical type of a structure that actually has a capability of transforming the ether around it to get certain outcomes to happen. It's almost like the buildings cast spells. So that's part of their design work. So when they design something like some of the buildings in Washington, D.C., they've been designed in a specific grid, on a specific wheel type of a layout. And each building has a specific type of cornerstones and and measurements built into them that are supposedly, according to the ancients, generate a specific outcome, where that outcome is dominance, power, money, control. This is how they um, believed back in the day, and they still currently believe it right now. So they've continued to like let it propagate on through, and, and they really build these structures that way. A lot of the church structures, believe it or not, the cathedrals and so forth are built by masons. And those, again, are designed to control the people. They're designed to control a specific type of frequency out of the ether that puts a controlling mechanism on the people. Uh, and it obviously has worked very, very well over many millennia. So that's something that a lot of people don't even know or never thought about was the fact that the structures themselves are built specifically mathematically to generate emotions, feelings, and outcomes kind of similar to the pyramid structures. If you know, Many scientists now have taken pyramidal structures and uh, put them on top of um, gardens and the gardens double their production. The soil becomes richer. Uh, animals that they've put inside of these pyramidal structures live longer. All these things happen just because of the geometry of structures. And uh, these masons, or real brick masons, have figured it out and have done some uh, amazing wizardry throughout the land with, with their buildings and structures. Let me ask you, because you just said a word there that was going to go with my question. Are they, I want to be very careful how I say this, but are they practicing a form of magic? Or could it be that these are just forces of nature that they manage to tap into? It's both. You see, every, we're, all ca- we're all magical. We're always casting magic spells, all of us. Whenever you read something mm-hmm. uh, or write something, 
you're spelling, you're casting a spell. Everything you say, you're speaking it out through a vibration through your throat, and it's actually interacting directly with the ether of space-time in order to obfuscate an outcome. Now, the outcome could be you just transferring information to me that I'm going to use for something else, or the outcome could be you for you to, uh, to get me angry or happy or sad or whatever the case may be. But those are all spells. When you take it into the realm of understanding the control that vibrations and frequencies have over everything, and especially because we're 70% water, so it really has a direct effect on the human body. And they figured out that uh, from looking at a lot of the ancient texts like the Mahabharata, uh, the Emerald Tablets of Thoth, Thoth talks in there about jingling matter out of the ether using frequencies and vibrations. He talks about showing his magic science to the barbarians that came out of the caves. This is in the Emerald Tablets written 36,000 years ago. So the magic has been here since the beginning, and it's not so much that we're creating the magic. It's that these ancient people had learned how to manipulate frequencies to create outcomes, and it's a type of a technology, even though we're calling it magic, I almost like to call it advanced technology because it's a real understanding of the fabric of space-time and how it works and the power of intention and power of consciousness. And it seemed like the ancient people were more in tune with that, especially these ancient advanced beings. They utilized more of that along with some of the, what we call electrical devices, whereas now we rely solely on electrical devices because we have no other capability of knowing how powerful we truly are. I guess I have two points to make. First of all, I love the um, way you highlighted the fact that, yeah, the word spells, mm -hmm. it sounds like the word to spell, spellings, mm -hmm. and it's essentially just spelling something out, just saying something out loud or writing something down. I mean, it's mm -hmm. literally just putting it into words, just manifesting it into mm -hmm. some sort of a, a vocal or written you know, form. Because it's as simple as that and people think magic is something supernatural and in a sense, I mean, anything that happens and occurs is natural, right? Mm -hmm. So if it... It's, a, it's, a, it's an understanding of how to interact with the natural and the seen and the unseen mm -hmm. because they're all natural. As you yeah. said, we just because we can't see it. But they figured out the frequencies, the vibrations, the thought patterns, the consciousness. Oh, yeah. That's all of that stuff to make it all come together. It's like a recipe. Yes. And the other example, a very simple thing that I've kind of come to grasp as I've done this research is the very basic concept of talking to your plants, which so many people think is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And yet you look into ancient civilizations, especially in the Americas, and part of their ritual while planting and fertilizing their plants was to sing in specific frequencies. And mm -hmm. it absolutely makes sense because everything on earth in the universe is a vibration. So if you are singing particular frequencies, why shouldn't it make sense that it would promote growth of a plant? And if something that simple, if a vibration that simple can promote growth of a plant, what can a greater vibration do to something, you know, mm -hmm. a far bigger project? Absolutely. You hit it right on the head. I mean, it's already been scientifically proven that if you play classical music 20 minutes before taking a test, you, you, you increase your odds of uh, getting a better score by 15 to 20 percent. Uh, it realigns the molecules in the brain. It just organizes you. And that's another way of even casting a spell. There's so many ways of doing this. And I think all of these 
secret societies have come up with their own ways. You have so many. You have the Illuminati, Skull and Crossbones, Rosicrucians, uh, the Prior of Siren. You got the Bohemian Club, Odessa, you know, the Anax, which are the progenitors from the Anunnaki's. You got the, I mean, there's so many of them. Solar Lodge, you know, the, the White Lodge. I mean, there's so many of them. But there's so few people involved. And all those people, when you really dig into their backgrounds, you find out they're all pretty much related. <laughs> so right. it's like one big family. Let's dive into a little bit of, uh, of the Anunnaki. But let me start with something that uh, Genevieve brought up in the first hour, which was this theory, if you will, that perhaps our ancestors, some people believe in the theory of evolution, uh, the possibility that some of those ancestors of ours were actually more intelligent than we were. And how real is the possibility that there was a civilization, possibly not of this planet, that interfered with our natural evolutionary process, if you will, and made us into, well, what we are now? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I really do believe, just based on the research that I've done and looked into, that a lot of the, um, the ancient hominids that were already here, and there were so many different hominids on this planet, all evolving at the same time before Homo sapiens even showed up, uh, that who knows which one was the smartest, but there were so many different types of people already here. Even before the Anunnaki got here, there was a, a culture in Iraq called the Ubaid culture, and I have a couple of these statuettes, uh, replicas, uh, that are in a museum. And these are reptilian type of people. One is a breastfeeding woman, the other one is a man, but they're reptiles. But there were real people that were really there that inhabited that area. So we had all different types of people here, and I really do believe that um, we had risen to a very high level of civilization prior to this Anunnaki uh, incursion here. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because when you look into a lot of the ancient record, like the Atreides epic, it really talks about this ancient war that took place. And it sounds as if the planet Tiamat was not just really crashed into by uh, a rogue planet, but the way it is described, it's described as an actual battle between the gods and it almost seems as if this planet was destroyed or blown up. And a couple of other uh, researchers and scientists had actually come up with the same, I guess, theory. And so this would have been millions of years ago and potentially could have been what doomed life on Earth. It could have been a situation where either like the Enuma Lish talks about, we broke apart from this planet and became Earth, which makes a lot of sense. And the reason why I say that is because the deeper we dig, the more artifacts we keep finding. They found an artifact, a vase, that was 500 million years old. Now, come on, a 500 million year old vase. What is this vase doing down that deep in rock that's 500 million years old? See, in my personal opinion, that vase and some of these other things like hammers and this other microchip that they discovered that was 100 million years old, I think these were part of Tiamat. When we were part of Tiamat, these objects became encased in, in rock and became part of the earth And once we broke away. I think some of these artifacts that we're finding aren't artifacts from Earth. It's artifacts from when we were a part of another planet. And that's why they keep finding these artifacts that are ridiculously old. But I do really do believe that when that planet exploded, whatever it did to the solar system, it probably cleared everybody out of here because that debris would have crashed into almost every planet and moon in our solar system and really would have wreaked havoc and most likely destroyed everything. And uh, this, pro this place had to probably be cleared out for maybe a few hundred thousand years. So, you know, that's just my personal opinion. They're just thinking about planetary debris and everything going everywhere. So uh, all of a sudden now you have the Earth re-coalescing. You have biological life form coming back. 
we have the water, we have the minerals because we took it from Tiamat. And now, many hundreds of thousands of years later, maybe millions of years later, all of a sudden the Anunnaki land, looking for resources. And here we are, already kind of in a, a pretty decent evolved state, really tapped and tuned into the the earth. Probably don't even have to speak. A lot of a lot of our vocalization could just be mental. Probably have, you know, those type of perception powers. And all of a sudden they come here and realize, uh, well, the, these are just, in their minds, savages, you know, out there in the wilderness, but not really realizing how in tune we are uh, spiritually. And and once they had did all the work themselves for 250,000 years without any humans, they got tired, and there was an actual coup. And some of the Anunnaki, which were called the EGG, they were the working class Anunnaki, they got tired of the hard labor and all the work for all this time, and literally went and surrounded the uh, camp of Enlil, and threatened to go to war with them. Uh, and then that's when the decision was made from Enki and Lil's brother to say, look, there's an existing hominid on this planet we can genetically modify by adding our essence to it, which is our DNA or whatever, and try to bring it to a higher level so that we can control it and so forth. So they started doing experimentation, and it wasn't successful at first. It took a while. At first, they started making these these humanoids or these more advanced humanoids or, or slave species, I would really call it, they started uh, making them by cloning. They would clone some of these existing hominids, and then they tried to add some functionality to them, almost like biological robots. And they were failing. Some of them were dying. Some of them couldn't replicate. The ones that could, couldn't replicate fast enough sexually. So what happened was, and Lil's half-sister said, what I'll do is I will take the baby to term. This is after maybe a few hundred years of trying, and uh, which for them is nothing because they live very long. But she took an egg out of one of the hominids and cleaned out the genetic material. And then they came up with their own genetic material to put back inside the egg. Now, in modern days, we do this right now. It's called creating a zygote. And then it's artificial insemination. So she created a zygote in ancient times and implanted it in her womb and took the baby to full term according to the tablet 10 months. She gave birth to the Adamu, which means first man. And there's this famous tablet in the British Museum where they're holding this baby up saying, my hands have created it. So that was the first modern homo sapien. But before Adam got here, there were already hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people already here slavering and working away long before Adam got here. So he wasn't the first man. He was just one of the first more controllable slaves, if you want to call it that, and one that could reproduce. They actually tried to mate him with one of these clones, and it didn't work out. That's when they went back and took another sample out of him and made a clone, Eve, and then also they made it together and were able to have a baby. So, But that's kind of the short version of the story. But yeah, there's uh, this a lot that they did, and I really believe that what they did was disconnect us from our higher self in order to create a slave. They just discovered now, scientists that there's an actual gene, a worship gene inside the human body. So there's a couple of things they did. They gave us a worship gene. The scientists now can't figure out how this thing got there, but there's a gene for worshiping and wanting to believe in a God or praise a God. I believe that was added by the Anunnaki. Wow. Also, yeah, our chromosome number two was taken out purposefully. This is Harvard science and fused into something called a telomere to telomere connection. And this fusion... They put a cap on one end and a cap on the other of a telomere. Now, a telomere is like this cap that has this genetic buffer material in it. And every time your cells and DNA replicate, which does all the time, this buffer material gets shorter and shorter. They discovered there's only enough buffer material in there to last 120 years. 
What does it say in the Bible and the tablets? My spirit shall not abide in man no longer than 120 years. This is when they decided to tear down the Tower of Babel and break men up and stop people from living that long. So it matches with the tablets of the Bible. Uh, and so they did that. They genetically modified us there. They, they shortened our lifespan. They um, disconnected us from our higher realms. And that's what all the junk DNA is. That's all the good stuff we used to have that we can't get access to anymore. They just disconnected it, really. And uh, they most likely probably shrunk our pineal gland to give us less access to the higher spiritual realms. Now you have a slave race. You have a slave that's going to worship you, that's going to believe you're a god, that's going to do anything you tell it to do, go kill, go do whatever, pillage, whatever these gods told them to do, they went out there and did it. If you read the book of Deuteronomy and the Bible, uh, you discover that there's uh, the quote-unquote God speaking, but it's not really God speaking. When you look at the original translations, it's gods with an S. You discover mm -hmm. that these these are actually Anunnaki relatives fighting each other by using human slaves to go to war for them, just like what they do right now still. And they would send these human beings to another city that they've never been to, and this is the Bible, Never know, don't even know who the people are, to go in there. The exact words are rape, pillage, destroy, kill, kill the women, kill the children, kill the oxen, kill the babies, kill the dogs. I mean, it was just brutal. And take the, the spoils of war and bring them back. And so they would go to battle with these human beings. And sometimes even these quote unquote angels would put on their military suits and go to battle with the humans. Again, these aren't angels. These are just, <laughs> these are people. But in our minds, because of the way we were set up mentally, they were gods and angels, but they were really just flesh and blood people with like just like us, just more advanced and in some cases a lot bigger. I have a really, really, well, I don't know if it's going to be quick, but you were mm -hmm. talking about telomeres and I'm super interested in knowing whether you heard about Scott Kelly's time in space where they actually investigated his DNA after he returned from space and he is one of two identical twins and... Mm -hmm they found out that his telomeres lengthened when he spent time in space. He spent several, well, quite a few months there, I think over a year. Yeah. And his telomeres lengthened. So when he came back, he was DNA-wise not identical to his brother anymore. So basically, yeah, that was interesting. he could be living longer in space and shorter on Earth. Have you heard of that? And what do you think of that? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it's actually uh, an article that didn't come out not too long ago. I think it was in... Um it's just March, maybe March or yeah, yeah, uh, or, yeah. it was an interesting article that I remember reading it because it was amazing. It, it was a picture of him and his brother sitting together, and uh, one of them now is actually potentially could live longer, <laughs> even though he was exposed to solar radiation. I mean, right. it's crazy. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of foods out there that you can eat, raw foods that will help uh, maintain your telomeres or, or extend the life of your telomeres. And there's also some new supplements out there that extend the life of telomeres as well. Now, scientists at Harvard University discovered a way to duplicate what happened to Kelly, uh, but do it on Earth. They extended the life of mice, I think, by three times wow. already. So wow. they know how to stop this. Yeah, they know how to do it now. But the thing is, if we don't take back control of this planet from these elites, they're going to start selling us time. Wow. I was going to turn <laughs> to yeah. that Justin Timberlake movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. It's real. Uh, Foreshadowing there. Mr. Carson, let me ask you this, and this this is a bit of a heavy question, and I know the people that listen to this show, they have their own beliefs and their own, own ideas, but mm -hmm. obviously you, you referenced the Bible a few times in our conversation, and I did some theological studies a few years ago, well, many years ago at this point, and I remember thinking that it was quite strange that humans seemed to have, at the time I, I called it an instinct 
to worship something bigger than they are. And you could see in a history from worshiping the sun and even civilizations that don't have contact with modern humans, they have their own deities. So yeah, humans do seem to want to worship something. And uh, I used to think that that was just, uh, at least for me at the time, it was an indication that there was a, a creator or a god. But the more I research and the more I look into things, it seems like things might not be that easy to explain, as you have pointed out as well uh, just a few minutes ago. So my question to you is, is there room for God in what we're talking about here? Or are we the creations of something other than a deity? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And I'm glad you asked it because a lot of people always want to find out what I believe in. Well, some of the people that are listening now may know if they know me that I'm heavily into quantum physics. And quantum physics proves that there is a creator of this universe. And it may not be one entity, it may be multiple entities. We don't know. And the reason why we don't know who created this universe is because there literally is no book written anywhere that has any information about the creator of the universe in it. Not one book. There's not one book here that exists that has the real information of the real creators of this universe, this realm, this light matrix that we're living in, doesn't exist. The Bible is a book of the Anunnaki. The Bible is a chopped and screwed version of information from the Emerald Tablets, uh, the Sumerian Tablets, the Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Gita, the Indian Vedas, <laughs> the Book of Hermes, all of these uh, different texts is just chopped up pieces of information put together and then cultivated, changed. And then a lot of the books, the Apocrypha texts that had some real heavy-duty information were left out. Uh, and even then they added things in, like they added hell, they added uh, the the uh, rapture in 1835 of William James Darby. And so many things were added in, and a lot of mistranslations still exist. Between the Sinai Bible and the modern King James Version Bible, there's 14,800 different uh, terms. So what are you really you know, worshiping? And then the fact that it's written so far after all the events happened, I can make a prophecy myself that way. I can literally just say, okay, I'm, I'm uh, you know, on, on May the 14th, I'm going to pick up a stone and throw it, and I can go pick up a stone. I mean, when you know all the answers to everything, you now it's not a prophecy anymore. If I go to the driver's license office with the uh, answers to the test in my pocket, pull them out and start taking the test, they're going to tell me I failed, and they're going to kick me out of there. And I kind of think that's what happened with the modern-day biblical text. It's all copied information. But the point that I'm bringing this up is, it doesn't mean that it's all invalid. There's a lot of good information in there that can be used. There's a lot of good history in there still, too. You have to learn how to discern it. You just have to learn how to research it. You have to learn how to dig it out and find the information and the bits that match with ancient bits and then put the bigger pieces of the puzzle together. That's the part that's hard. And that's the part that a lot of people don't take the time to do because it is very time-consuming and it's very, it's very difficult and it takes a lot of research. And when you're working and you got two kids or three kids and you got to pay your bills and everything else, and you got to eat and you still got to do all your other stuff. It, it kind of gets caught up in one of those things where it's not that important. But to me, the reason why I put so much emphasis on trying to figure this out, and I'm a master in, 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 of the information that's in the Bible and a lot of these other ancient texts, is because if I'm going to base, according to these people, they're going to base their eternity on something. You're basing your inter eternity on something, and then you don't even know what it's about. They'll ask me questions about God, and I'll tell them, well, let me ask you a question. When was the Bible written? They don't know the answer to that. Give me a summary of the book of Deuteronomy, one of the most important books in the Bible. They don't know the answer to that. Where was Jesus during the time that he disappeared from the, They don't know the answer. They don't know a lot of the answers, but again, they're basing all their eternity on this. And this is a big problem that we have as a species. The fact that we're so willing to join a cargo cult and just buck up and think 
this is the way to go because the sheep, everybody's going in this direction. The Bible, that's not an insult, by the way, because the Bible calls them sheep. Mm-hmm. So it's, we're all going in this direction, but we don't really know what direction we're going in. We have no clue what we're studying, what we're reading. We're just taking a couple of notes on the weekends, putting a couple of dollars on a plate, and going home. We say a couple of prayers, and supposedly that's going to be just enough for us to live forever. I think what people need to realize is this. We are already eternal. Every single one of us is an eternal being. We have already been here and we will always be here. We are part of a collective consciousness that has separated itself into trillions of entities from the smallest ant to the largest being, sentient being that exists. And it has, it's literally on a data collection mission. Just like the human brain is encased in darkness in your head and your human brain cannot tell anything that's going on on the outside until it talks to its friends Sight, sound, smell, hearing, feel. It says, look, friends, I don't know what's going on out there, but please go out there and collect some information and bring it back to me so I can figure out what's going on. Now, the friends go out there. The friends themselves have no clue about the data they're collecting. The vision doesn't know. The touch doesn't know. The smell has no clue. It's just collecting literally zeros and ones, bits of information, brings it back to the brain, which is encased in darkness. And now the brain deciphers all of this information out within split seconds and figures out what's out there and then projects a holographic illusion of what's exactly what's out there it takes the electromagnetic waves and turns it into bits of digital data that we navigate through. But in true reality, there's nothing out there at all. So this is important for people to understand that we're more than just this biological avatar. We are literally being broadcast into this realm, in my opinion, spiritually from a collective consciousness. So don't worry about the body. Do what you want with the body. I'm not here. This is just a, uh, an illusion. The true, real person, the true, real you, the conscious you, the spiritual you is directly connected to source energy and and energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transformed. So I think that worrying about going to get saved and getting dunked in water and following these deities and everything else and crying and seeing all these things, I think that it's really been a diversion and distraction against the the real information that people need to know is how powerful they truly, really are at the God, the essence of God is in you and you are in the essence of God. So that makes you a God man or a God woman walking the earth. It doesn't mean that you can go out and create planets and universes, but what it does mean is there's a certain amount of power that has been allotted to you, but you have to tap into it through consciousness. And when you reach that level of consciousness to where you have command over your law of attraction, command over your karma, command over love, which is the most powerful force of all uh, in this third dimension, then you will discover that you have, you have the capability of changing events, altering future timelines, and living a kind of a life that may be better for you and, and for many others, and also setting a great example. You don't have to wait for a deity to allow you to do that. And I think a lot of people miss that message that Jesus was speaking in the New Testament where he said, you shall do greater things and ye are gods. But they still shun from that and run away from it and try to go up under the clergy and beg somebody to give them and show them the way when they are really the truth, the way, and the light. It's inside of every single one of us. I think once people wake up and really and truly understand that, this is another big reason why they want to hide the aliens and the UFOs from us because once you realize that religion is fake and that the true power is already within you, you're already here, you're just just as good as these guys, Uh, a lot of the systems will collapse, multi-trillion dollar businesses will collapse, and a lot of the control systems will also collapse. Not instantly, but over time. But we're powerful, man. We just When I tell people, when I pray, I don't pray from a position of begging. Oh, God, please help me. Oh, can I, I, can't, I can't pay my mortgage. Oh, I command everything. I command my, I'm taking care of. I command that 
my bills are already paid before I even before they even do. When I'm getting ready to travel, I don't pay to have a safe trip. I command that my trip is safe from the start to finish before I go. And somebody was sitting to me the other day, I'll let you say your prayers. We were having dinner. I, just, I don't pray. I've already, I've already blessed my food. It doesn't mean that right. I'm having an ego and saying that I'm God, but what it means is I understand the power of my consciousness. I understand the source of my consciousness. It's coming from the Christ consciousness and the God consciousness. And when you know how to connect with that through quantum entanglement, you now have the same power. The power is transferred directly into you at the same time. I, used, I do that for parking spots, wherever I need to go. Wherever I need, I, I, I create it. And I think that if everybody had the same mindset, it doesn't mean we'll live a perfect life and nothing's ever going to happen to you because things still happen to me. But what it means is you can minimize those effects of the time ripples that occur and the, and the different things, that negative things that happen. You can minimize those effects. And then when they do, when something negative does happen, you have the capability of overcoming it almost instantly without having any effect on your emotion, without getting mad, angry, scared, sad, and all this other kind of stuff. It's almost like you're a Vulcan. It's just an amazing way to live. And I wish everybody can tap into that. That was a powerful, powerful answer. Um, thank you for that. I really no, appreciate I th- that. I yeah. think that's amazing because it's a far deeper explanation of the basic guidances we hear every day, such as think positively or, yeah. you know, if you're positive, then you'll attract positive things. And if you have a positive mentality, then good things will come to you. It's basically mm-hmm. a far deeper understanding of those basic idioms and you're really giving them a great explanation. Um, but we were talking about DNA. I just really briefly wanted to ask you about the significance of the number 37 in the human genome because nowadays, you know, people want evidence. They're like, hey, how do we know we were really modified? How do we know we were changed? And the fact that it occurs at certain points quite frequently in our genetic makeup, just the fact that a number occurs more than it should, what right. does that Well, one thing that, that it's, it's in the mitochondrial imply? DNA, and I know that the DNA is in the, um, it's in the same frequency and flow pattern as the Fibonacci sequence, and those numbers fall into the Fibonacci sequence very nicely. Oh, wow. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so you have to have the curvature in there, that, that arc, that shape, mm-hmm. and that pretty much flows through the entire body. You can even break down the distance between the bottom of your finger to the distance between the knuckle and then the second knuckle. And when you divide that, you discover you're at 1.618. All these different points of the human body all tap into the Fibonacci sequence, and it even goes down to the DNA level, genetic level as well. So I believe that that's what the research kind of really is going towards, is finding that this is really showing, again, kind of a little bit what I was really getting into before I got so far into the God thing, was that the fingerprint of God, the creator, is here. And the fingerprint of the creator is things like the Fibonacci sequence, pi, phi, so if I was a CSI investigator, let's say Earth was a crime scene and I was trying to find out who created this planet, I would then start digging and investigating on a genetic level. And I would find these different types of sequences, mitochondrial DNA, I would find uh, genes, I would find all these things that would start coming up with mathematical computations. And these numbers would then give me a source base to go by. And then when I started seeing matches and patterns, I would realize that this is the same entity that created this. This is the same entity that created that. And now I would start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I realized that everything on this planet was created by one specific mathematical code. And this is the pattern that it's in. And that 37 fits into that pattern perfectly. So I would have to say this is a fingerprint of God, so to speak, the person or the entity or entities that created this realm or this planet. That code is in our DNA. It's in everything. 
Honestly, wow. for yeah, for laymen such as us, that was a great explanation, and um, I I just wanted to hear a little bit about that. Okay, that was a great explanation, and and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight. Why don't you tell people one more time where they can find you online, uh, your websites and your Twitter? Oh, yes. Please go to ForbiddenKnowledge.com with the number 4-B-I-D-D-E-N-K-N-O-W-L-E-D-G, Forbidden Knowledge. That's on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, on Stellar. I'm going to be speaking at Contact in the Desert June 1st through 4th of uh, 2018. So you can check me out at Contact in the Desert. I have two lectures there, which are going to be absolutely amazing. I'm going to show things there that nobody's ever shown before. So you got to come check it out. And uh, my book is on pre-order right now, The Compendium of the Emerald Tablets. Uh, that's on ForbiddenKnowledge.com. Very cool. And we hope to see you actually at Contact in the Desert as well. If I know you got a lecture and a workshop and the, the both topics that you will be covering there sound really, really fascinating. Yeah. Hopefully we can have you back on the show in the near future because honestly, I feel like we were just uh, getting into the good stuff. Yeah, we're just getting end. warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll definitely have to set a time for you to come back and, and dive into this because you're, you're definitely a fountain of information and, and we're really... Uh, Happy that we got this time to talk to you. Thank, Thank you so, so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. I look forward to sharing this. So get me the link so I can share it to all my groups and everything. Will do. Will do. Thank you so much, Mr. Carson. Please enjoy the rest of your evening. That was Billy Carson. He was our guest tonight. And boy, I am like literally, I've been on the edge of my seat. It was, it was definitely one of the, the, the more deep and profound conversations we've had. Uh, I want to send a quick shout out to everyone that tuned in tonight via TuneIn. Thank you so much. Um, Spade, Society and Variety. Um, we had Shristi, DJ Gini. Um, so thank you so much. I know there were a lot more people than that. Yeah, no, definitely. And if you're catching the podcast version of this show, we hope you had a good time. And definitely check out Billy Carson on social media, his website and his uh, Gaia program, uh, we got to watch a, a few episodes. They're definitely, definitely very, very informative. And as you could tell by this interview, he has a wealth of information to draw from and a great ability to explain some of these more complex theories and ideas. So a big thanks to Mr. Billy Carson once again. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys, we are going to go out with a little bit of... Um, I'm still on my mid nineties uh, oh, kick, still, right? Still. Yeah. So, all right, all right. Let me on. just finish finish this evening appropriately. Uh, what, what's more mid nineties than three eleven? I don't know. So we're gonna go <laughs> with a little bit of three eleven. Okay. <laughs> Is at everything all right? Got, at least you've got some Californian mid nineties. Yeah, and I mean the weather. The weather's up. warming up, and you're mi I said you're mixing it up, you know, and that's about you're kind of about to play. So. <laughs> oh, okay. I see. Oh, sorry. I guess I should have been more uh, <laughs> and, and on radio mode here. But yeah, this has been West of the Rockies. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter. West of the Rockies on Facebook. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WTR Radio. And uh, check out the website, WTRRadio.com, for more interviews, uh, both radio and video interviews we got up there and some other cool stuff. Be on the lookout for our... Uh, interview slash mini documentary featuring uh, uh, the amazing artist James Picard. It will be getting premiered uh, this May 3rd coming up in Vancouver. And I believe shortly after that, we'll be able to post that on our YouTube channel. So uh, definitely check it out. As always, uh, joined by Genevieve. Genevieve, you weigh on Twitter. Catch her here every Thursday night at 7 to 9 p.m. 
hosting no added flavors, music, fun facts, and jokes. And boy, did I go over. Here's 311 all mixed up. Take care. Be safe. God bless. Don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. And I just kind of sounded like those uh, auctioneer guys. Like, and, and see you next week, guys. Bye. <laughs> West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.